When my next guest walked on stage, the crowd at the Great Hall in Toronto popped. A giant of a man with long, dark, wavy hair and wearing a dark, long coat came on stage and read from his book. This was March 29th, 2018. I had no clue who this person was. I think it wasn't until I got to my home in Scarborough that I realized he used to be the lead singer of Junk House. I had heard their songs on Q107. But why did he read from a book? My next guest was raised in Hamilton, Ontario. He's an award-winning musician, singer, songwriter. He's an author, a painter, a visual artist. The liner notes in his book, Beautiful Scars, reads, Along the way, he became a father and a grandfather, battled demons and addiction, and he waited, hoping for the truth to emerge. And when it did, it would sweep across the St. Lawrence River to the Mohawk Reserve of Kanawake in Quebec, on to the heights of the Manhattan skyline. I now began to understand a little bit why he read from his book. Please welcome to the show, Tom Wilson. Hello, how are you? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for coming down. Thank you. Really appreciate it. You've made this drive, 401 drive, thousands of times. Oh, uh, I take the QEW to uh, basically, you know, I love Toronto. I love looking at it from across the bay and across the lake, but the city is broken. You cannot drive in this city. Oh, yeah. It's crazy. So, anyways, but that's that's really, you know, neither here nor there. No. It's nice to be with you guys. Thanks. How's your health, by the way? It's better. Good. Yeah. Good, good. Yeah. I had a little, I had a little setback in November, but you know what? I mean, uh, you know, I'm going to be 60 next month. It's like you got to expect uh, things to break down once in a while. Yeah, go, go in and get the little... Get your heart tinkered with, or whatever. Yeah, he's taken care yeah, of. Yeah, they did. They tinkered with my heart. Sounds romantic. Yeah. <laughs> or a start of a song. <laughs> Tom, I was um, I, I finished reading your book uh, late last night. Um, it, I usually before I sit down with someone, before we sit down and, and and chat with someone, I've got two pages of notes. I've got one page of. Of sort of a, an opening, and I've got a page of here's sort of themes I want to talk about. Um, I've got like six pages here. Oh my gosh! And I was talking to Greg, and I go, "There's so much to talk about. I have no clue where to begin, what direction to go to." Um, so I'm going to start with Hamilton. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you're you're. Hamilton, I would say, correct me if I'm wrong, in, especially in your book and I guess in your life, Hamilton plays a huge role. It's a huge character in your life, in your, in your story, in, in your book. Mm-hmm. Um, what does Hamilton mean to you today? Uh, well, Hamilton, Hamilton still is home. I mean, I found out that I'm really... I was born there, um, uh, but, the, but the calling has always been back to Ganawage. It's something that I've oh, I felt all my life. And if you talk to most kids who are adopted, they imagine places and people, um, the possibilities of where they might be from when they don't know or they're not sure of where they're from. But Hamilton was a place I could wake up and put both my feet on the ground that felt like home. It's a place that helped shape me 
into who I am today for better or worse. And as I started writing this book, uh, my editor, Martha Kenya Forstner at Random House, uh, realized very quickly that Hamilton was a character in this book. Yeah. Hamilton was, uh, was, I speak about Hamilton like it's an old friend, you know, or an old uncle hmm. that, uh, you know, kind of showed up at the front door around Christmas and Thanksgiving. So even though I lived there, there's a romance when looking back at what Hamilton was um, and what it meant to me. It's changed quite a bit over the years, and so have I. Uh, but we still have that connection. The same way I have a connection that I'm developing now with um, the reserve back in Quebec, Ganawake. Yeah. Well, I, was, I was talking with a coworker of mine, Ben, who's from Hamilton. And, and I asked him, like, what is it about Hamilton? Like, what, what, why are people the way they are? Uh, and he was telling me, well, if you, if you grew up, I think he said it was the north end where the, the steel mills were. Was that the north end? or Yeah, something? man, that's the north end. Yeah, and, and he said, you know, when, back in the day, if you were from there, you'd live there, you'd work there, and you'd be mentally, spiritually, physically a tough person. Mm-hmm, that's and great. He, and he said once that industry started to shrink. There was no reason for people to live, you know, the majority of people to live there anymore, and they, they sort of moved out, but sort of that character remained. And, and then another co-worker of mine, Bailey, sits beside him. I said, what's the difference between the people on the mountain and down? As she says it's like, you know, the kids that grew up downtown, you know, who, you know, ran the streets, like physically ran the streets, mm-hmm. and, and the kids, you know, who might have been privileged living above looking down. Yeah. Um, has that changed? And more so than, than I think Toronto, it, it seems that Hamilton creates a type of person. Uh, well, you got to remember that uh, people there, uh, people from Toronto don't understand. Well, they don't have a lot of desire to understand people from Hamilton. Um, but uh, they can understand people from Hamilton because even geographically, hmm. It's the opposite of what Toronto is, right. uh, not just culturally and uh, not uh, only in the familiarity with itself. And uh, Toronto is a place, like a lot of big cities, and by the, by the way, this is not a Hamiltonian walking into Toronto and slagging Toronto. I like Toronto a lot, but um, there's a familiarity with, uh, with the people and the places in a smaller city that you don't get in Toronto. You might all have a uh, uh, an area of the city um, that you might be familiar with, and that is a reference point in conversation, or that might be a, a cool place for you guys to go. You know, or, uh, but in in Hamilton, we know the places intimately, and we know one another intimately. Uh, Hamilton's like the biggest small town, you know. In, in Ontario in the way that it might be half a million people. But uh, if I walk through the kindergarten door with you, yeah, chances are one of us will be standing beside the other's grave throwing dirt on it. You know people your wow. entire life in Hamilton. And as I was saying, the mindset is different. Uh, geographically, it's opposite of Toronto. Yeah. The lake is to the south. You know what I mean? In Hamilton, the lake is to the north, mm-hmm. you know. And also, culturally, 
we don't have the same reference points. Toronto's a big enough city that it can uh, be inspired uh, or, or believe that it can be inspired by what's inside its city limits in, in a lot of ways, you know. If it's, uh, if it's going to look uh, beyond its uh, city limits, uh, I actually don't know where Toronto Tony would look to. Just want to close that door, Alan? Yep. Um, Hamilton uh, always looked uh, to, like to Detroit, Buffalo. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? We looked in, in a different direction. Hamiltonians as, as, as whole artists from Hamilton didn't really look to Toronto for inspiration, um, which, uh, you know, we looked to Buffalo, New York. We looked to Detroit, Michigan. You know, the bands that would come and play at our high schools that were starting out would be like... Uh, Stooges, you know, and the MC5, and Alice Cooper, you know, uh, Ted Nugent, you know, those are the people that would show up in our backyards who were starting out to play. I mean, that's a that's a mighty force of rock and roll to be rolling un- uh, into a high school gymnasium, you know, to do a concert. Um, so 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 we were we picked up on that uh, rock and roll music that came out of Hamilton, picked up on that. You know, that Detroit sound, you know, the sound of desperation. And uh, and that's a good sound. That's a good way to make art, you know, hmm. a good way to make art. Not desperate to be famous, not desperate to be rich, just desperate to be heard. And uh, I think that that's still still lives in it runs through the blood of Hamiltonians I was going to ask it so my stepson and his partner's girlfriend they now or they move from Toronto they live in Hamilton and you're finding a lot of younger people from Toronto cost of housing here when you yeah, talk man. about broke not even the traffic right we've got a lot of other issues yeah, here yeah yeah um, how is that influencing Hamilton today with a lot of you know the younger crowd coming in and being able to afford to live in Hamilton and buy well, Hamilton. Well, for for a sixty year old man, uh, it, it's a lot more great places to eat. Yeah. You know, um, I don't know how it would do culturally. I don't know. I don't think it'll change. Uh, uh, I mean, my job not as a gnarly old guy because I'm not a gnarly old guy, and I'm a nine oh five er. But I've, I've always I, I welcome I welcome people from outside yeah. to you know to come in. A lot of Hamiltonians, you know, don't feel the same way. I mean, the difference in Hamilton uh, 15, 10, 15, 20 years ago was, you know, the, the, the street that I lived near, Lock Street in Hamilton, was a street that used to have uh, $500 cars parked on it, mm-hmm. on the curbs, you know. And now there's $3,000 baby strollers being pushed down the street. Right. So that's, that's, a, a, um, that's a big difference, you know, from what it was to what it is. Mm-hmm. Does it make... Hamilton better? No, it doesn't make Hamilton better. It doesn't make it more interesting. No, it doesn't make it more interesting. Does it make it more livable? Well, in some ways it does, you know. Um, so there's benefits to having people from Toronto moving to Hamilton, but they, uh, uh, but they don't bring uh, necessarily anything that I think is going to inspire yeah. us artistically. Yeah, you yeah know? fair and, and I And I, th- I think that... Uh, like I say, I, I'm very cautious about answering questions uh, about Toronto and people moving into Hamilton from Toronto because uh, I'm not really in the uh, I'm not on the market to uh, to be harsh or to insult anybody. Yeah, and I wasn't I wasn't even talking about just Toronto kids necessarily moving there. Just you know, 
I, I know kids from Niagara that are you know growing up in Niagara, mm-hmm. get a job in Toronto and where can they afford to live? Mm-hmm. And, and that could be you could look to the other side to, to Oshawa. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you're living in you're living in communities where it's I'll call it affordable. <laughs> Some, some might argue that completely affordable. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I mean, let's just face it. I bought the last house I bought 15 years ago. I paid 300 grand for, and it's yeah. worth over a million now. You know, yeah. so I mean, for for an artist and a writer or a guy who's trying to be an artist still, and and a writer and a musician. I mean, you know, that's a that's a bag of money. That's a gift. Yeah. You know. You know, and uh, before they strapped the colostomy bag to me and, uh, <laughs> you know, put all the, the new set of teeth in my head. And you know what? That, that's a pretty good gift. Yeah, absolutely. You've always had a fascination with guitars. Um, yeah. Er, er, early in your book, you talk about uh, you finding out a, an opportunity to take lessons and you get a guitar with that lesson. And I think you just went to one lesson um, and, and you got the guitar I, I saw in your instagram you've got this guitar where you've got people that you admire in music you've got their signatures yeah uh all over it yeah you're you've been, hey you've been creeping it's <laughs> <laughs> <So> research <laughs> um and then you also paint guitars beautiful paintings yeah um beautiful pieces of art um what what was your first memory of that instrument as a child and why why did you gravitate to that versus other instruments, maybe. Well, um, the physicality is of it is very sensuous. Let's just start with that. Um, but uh, what it was was a, a vehicle out. It was uh, uh, to me. I saw it as a kid. Uh, as uh, it, it was a door to uh, to possibilities opening up. Um, without without getting my hands on that first guitar. I probably would have got myself in a lot more trouble than I ended up getting myself in, and and I, I, I wouldn't have uh, been able to realize uh, my own potential um, to be able to express myself. As a kid, I wanted, at, at the age of four, I wanted to be a communicator. Now I didn't say at four years old. Yeah. They mm-hmm. asked me in class when I was five <laughs> or six years old. When they asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? I didn't say I want to be a communicator. Uh, I, all I could say was that I wanted to be an artist. And at, at the age of, uh, you know, one month away from being 60 right now, it's still what I want to be. Mm-hmm. I'm still on the road to being an artist. And the guitar was really my first step mm-hmm. to, um, to uh, seeing, that, seeing that job. You know, it was kind of, uh, it was the foundation for me being able to uh, write music, and write my own words and be able to sing them out loud. I mean, you think about what we all have to offer as young young people, as children. Before we go to school, when we're two, three, four years old, if you have kids or you have grandkids, you know, you know, you watch those those kids and everybody sings. Everybody dances, everybody acts outplays everybody makes up stories everybody writes stories everybody freely colors and draws Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden you go to school and they basically choke hold you and hold you to the mat and strangle all those possibilities out of you and for the rest of our lives some of us are always looking for a way to regain 
that creative child that's in all of us. And the guitar, for me, was the first step to trying to get back to uh, expressing myself freely. I'm a firm believer that if everybody sang every day, that this would be a more peaceful world, that we would realize ourselves, mm. be able to hear our own voices, even if it's in the shower, the old joke about <laughs> singing in the shower. But, you know, I truly believe that uh, being able to express ourselves um, would, uh, would shake loose those frustrations that we all feel having to walk out on, is it Adelaide Street below here? Yeah, no. yeah you walk out on that street, you're going to feel frustrated. I actually believe that uh, um, being able to paint and write and, and, and sing uh, is our freedom. It was our freedom as children. And if we are actually able to look back at that, it was probably, for, for most of us, hopefully, the most uh, freewheeling and joyous time in our lives. It's funny you say that because I just got off the subway coming down here and because the traffic parked up, yeah. up at the house at Peyton Danforth or up there. And you parked in North Bay. Pardon me. <laughs> I did. But what was funny you say that is that we were on the, the streetcar coming down Spadina, and there was a little girl, and she had to have been three years old, mm-hmm. and she was just singing away. Yeah. Just singing her, her heart out. And uh, everybody around, I can't say everybody, but most people around, instead of, you know, at first you look over and go, what's going on? And then everybody was smiling. Yeah. And, and I think you're right. It's like everybody thinks back, and you can just get that feeling of, well, this it, little it, child in I, I'm, I'm a firm believer in that yeah. and uh, I really believe that anybody that, that we appreciate yeah. I don't care if it's sure. Leonard Cohen or Eminem you know it doesn't matter who it is that what the, all they're trying to do is get that back you know yeah. uh, is get back that uh, that freedom yeah. of being a child and you know what I, I always say I never say that I'm an artist or writer or anything like that because uh, I, I basically want to go to the grave working on being an artist mm-hmm. you know working on getting that back was there you sort of remember as a, as a young child wanting to communicate wanting to tell stories or um, express yourself through art was there the stories you wanted to tell the things you wanted to express how have they changed throughout the years well, uh, they've definitely changed in the last seven years because finding out, uh, uh, I mean, uh, the, the book Beautiful Scars was written. Um, I got a book deal. I got called. I never thought about writing a book. And I got a book deal. Random House called me and asked me if I write it, wanted to write a book because they heard me on, on radio talking about uh, finding out that I was adopted, that uh, uh, it, it, it was kind of shocking and it was a relief, um, but also finding out that uh, I'm not Irish guy. I'm actually a Mohawk. Um, um, the woman who acted as my cousin my entire life turned out to be my mother. I grew up an only child. I have six brothers and sisters. And uh, I have been embraced by the indigenous community um, wholeheartedly. I didn't have to prove anything, unlike other cultures, you know, where you have to, uh, you know, basically walk through fire or or join some kind of private club to get membership. The indigenous community was just like, oh, okay, so you're one of us. Great. Come on in. Identity, or the lack of identity, let's say, 
in the 53 years before that. It caused me a lot of problems, and it causes people, adopted people who don't know where they're from or who were never told where they're from. And there's a lot of them out there because every night I go on stage, I talk about, about this, and I talk about identity. And uh, when I do, I get people coming up every day saying, you know what, I'm 49 years old. I just found out that I was adopted. Or my mother grew up thinking that her sister was her sister and it wasn't until later in life she found out that her sister was actually her mother these stories run through our neighborhoods through our cities through our households all over the place right so um identity is what changed everything for me because before that i was still working on becoming an artist i was still writing and i'm still painting and i was still still doing all that stuff that i do now only I was doing it untethered, and all of a sudden, because I know where I'm from, I know my identity, then it's given me a direction that I've never been able to, uh, to take possession of before. Did you know that, did you have that sense inside that this is not right, something's missing, there's more to my story or to my life than what I know? Like, did you... Did you know that subconsciously, or uh, you knew that up in the front of your mind? I'm curious about that. I, uh, I always suspected. But I was, I was always told the opposite. I grew up in a household with uh, my parents. Bunny and George Wilson were, were really quite old. They were too old to be having kids. George Wilson was a tail gunner in a Lancaster bomber in the Second World War, the suicide position in the Second World War, and most of the men and boys that sat in that seat didn't make it home. He made it home, but he made it home. He was totally blind with a massive head injury. And um, they, uh, they never gave up the secret. So their niece got pregnant to an older married man on the reserve back home in Ganawake, and, uh, and, and they decided to take me in. They, they took the baby in. But when they took me in, they made everybody in the family, the wall went up that I was never to know where I came from or who my father was or the fact that my cousin Janie was my mom. So, um, so as a result, uh, I feel like I, I always felt like I never fit in. Mm-hmm. I always felt like I was the outsider. I've talked about this way before I found out that I was, uh, you know, that I, I was, was adopted. And I always felt like I was the outsider, and I didn't mean like the cool outsider, like uh, like some cool actor or some cool musician or some cool guy. I always felt like the outsider, like I was actually the fucking outsider, like yeah, I didn't like know. The black sheep. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and um, and so I had to prove I had to prove myself in different ways. You know, I had to prove that I could uh, drink more, fuck more. I was say, or, yeah, uh, I would like that to. Yeah, I had I had to. Um, I, I don't really ever consider myself a macho guy, but you know, I mean, whatever it was, whatever, whatever that time in my life, you know, I had to, I had to get in more fights, or I had to uh, smoke more joints, or I had to do more of whatever everybody else around me was doing, so that at least uh, I could be identified as, you know, that guy. So, um, 
what a str- you know uh, it's an odd struggle you know so uh, um, now uh, going back to your question is uh, I always suspected I was from somewhere else but I didn't know where throughout your book and I'm, you know I, I guess it's throughout your life it like it seemed that so many people told you um, you know all your girlfriends were telling you you can't be Bunny's kid you're you're yeah. you're, you're someone else's um, you, you tell a story early on about this guy who wanted to put a feather in your head. He said, you'll, you'll, "Oh yeah, yeah, manager. Bill Powell. Yeah, manager, yeah, he wanted story. to be my manager. Yeah, yeah. Tell that story. That that. that well, you crazy. know, I mean, and he wasn't being mean either. He just says, you know, you look kind of Indian. He said, uh, you know, this is during the folk time, right? Um, uh, he said, you look kind of Indian. He said, you know, he says, I think we should, we should, we could really get you going if we called you Indian Tom Wilson. He says, we don't need to put a full headdress on you or anything. Mm-hmm. We just need one feather he says, sticking out of the back of your head, and you go up and sing. And I thought, you know what? Yeah, I, I don't know what you're talking about. You know? I was about 18 then. And then, uh, you know, uh, uh, that kind of went on for a long time. How's this? You know what? I, uh, my daughter, who there was a picture of me actually also on Instagram okay. from um, uh, just before the guitar one. Uh, of me, the Hamilton Spectator did an article on me when I was, I think, uh, 18. Was it where you're a kid and you're on a balcony or something? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I got yeah. a guitar. I'm 18 years old. Yeah. And uh, it's like, wow, do I ever look like, I look like an indigenous guy for sure. And my daughter, um, on Sunday nights, looked at that picture and she says, oh my God, you had to be racially profiled your entire life and you had no idea why. And it really upset her. Hmm. But... Uh, when I thought about it, I thought, you know, it's kind of true. You know, maybe you know, it's not a sob story, but sure. you know, when you don't know who you are and you're being kind of, you know, profiled as one thing when you have no idea. I mean, I mean, kids, uh, kids in school, you know, would always say, uh, you know, kind of, kind of go do the, you know, cartoon. Hi, how are you? Hi, how are you? And all that kind of stuff. But it kind of bounced off me because I didn't, I didn't know what I was. They were talking about. Right? Yeah. I didn't see myself that way. Did you ever try to change your the, the way you looked at all to say I don't want people to say that anymore about me? No, I, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, in, in some ways, I, I didn't care. You know, okay. I, I just didn't get it. I didn't get it. But uh, looking back now, uh, you know, I think there was. Uh, I, I, I think that uh, there's a lot of assholes in this world. <laughs> <laughs> there's a story of uh, a Bunny and you in a in a hospital, and I think a doctor's asking her questions. Have you ever given birth? She says, no, not ever. Um, she's told, she had told you earlier on, you know, I, I've got secrets that about you mm-hmm. that I'll take to the grave with That's me. Right, yeah. yeah, Bunny wow. Wilson with the uh, temperament of a scalded cat. And she yeah. was getting, uh, she was in her, uh, she was probably in her late 70s at the time. And I was driving her around to her, her doctor appointments. Uh, she was getting a hysterectomy for because can- she had cancer. And how old were you then? So she's 70 Oh, I was in junk house then. I was probably uh, 35 years old. Okay. And I was taking her, uh, I was, uh, we were up at the uh, Henderson Hospital in the cancer clinic, and the doctor was interviewing before her hysterectomy and said, well, have you ever had any children? And she said, oh, no, doctor, I've never had any children. <laughs> I said, Mom, <laughs> what? I was in the corner, and she, she believed that doctors were some higher, basically, you know, that Jesus Christ himself had sent the doctors to the, to the earth to 
take care of us. They were like uh, priests, you know, or or rabbis to her. And, you know, she said, shh, Tommy, be quiet. I'm talking to the doctor right now. And that's where it was left. And I never pushed the uh, subject any further. It wasn't until I was driving my cousin home from a birthday party. And I said, Janie, you know, I found out a couple years ago, or no, I found out a little while ago, that mom and dad weren't my, weren't my mom and dad. And she turned to me and said, Tom, I don't know how to tell you this, and I'm sorry, I hope you forgive me, but I'm your mother. Until that moment, wow. it wasn't real. In fact, until this moment, it's barely real. Because I need to be reminded sometimes that I'm a Mohawk. I have to tell you this in a little greater detail. Yes. That um, I come from seven generations of Skywalkers, iron workers, guys who mm -hmm. built North America into the sky. Like, that's a big deal. I didn't even know that. Yeah. Like, they all come from Gunawaki. That they build, like, New all these huge buildings. Most, much of New York, Manhattan. Manhattan was oh. built by Mohawks, really? yeah. Oh, yeah. I had no clue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because uh, 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 they were able to do, they just would do the work because they didn't complain, and uh, they got the job done. And uh, you know that famous photograph of those guys eating their lunch building yeah. Rockefeller Center? Those are all Mohawks? Yeah, if you go to, if you go to Ganawage, uh if you go to Ganawage. Almost every household has a statue, or that photograph, but usually a statue of that famous photograph because everybody in Ganawaki has somebody as no a great uncle or great-grandfather or somebody in the family that's in that photograph. And, uh, you know, so, so how am I supposed to feel that rich, you know, culture? How am I supposed to feel... Uh, you know, the robbery. How am I supposed to feel the murders? Uh, how am I supposed to feel what my ancestors have gone through? Not only the pain, but also the pride of my culture. Just by yeah. switching a switching a, uh, a switch, flicking a switch. You know, I can't do that. So um, I feel that uh, however long I have on this planet is going to be me dedicating my art. You're talking about how my art has changed and how I told you about identity. And so how I'm going to get closer to my cultures by dedicating my work to the Mohawk culture to show it honor and pride and respect and honor and... Uh, love and and in doing that then uh you know i'll edge my way to actually feeling a little bit uh deeper uh a part uh, of the mohawk culture is there a guilt that you feel that you that you ha had this sort of you didn't live a quote-unquote privileged life you know you, oh, no you know you, you talked about you, oh it was so you talked about it must have been in the first chapter where you're talking about at school uh just before Christmas, all the kids are giving this stuff for boxes, uh -huh. like care packages, I guess, it was, right? Um, it was uh, uh, food hampers. Food hampers. For the needy. For the needy. The needy. That's, That's the word right. you use, the needy. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, you, you were talking about downtown and the mountain. Downtown was really tough in Hamilton, but the mountain where I grew up was... Uh, 
um, you know, it was it was working class families and and also uh, families that just uh, didn't have anyone working in the household at all. Um, uh, there was uh, you know lots of lots of uh, what I considered normal everyday struggles, you know, with uh, people who drank too much and people who lived a little too hard. And I mean, it was a different generation. I mean, when we talk about when I when I write about what I wrote about in in this book, when I wrote about growing up on East Thirty Sixth Street in Hamilton, I mean, hell, man. You talk to a lot of people who are my age, and that was just how it was growing up. You know what I mean? It wasn't that big a deal. Yeah. So when I wrote this book, I didn't write it to uh, so that I wasn't telling a sob story. No, of course. Not. I was telling a story that uh, if uh, if I if I run into anybody in my neighborhood, it was like, yeah, they got more to add. When you when the kids on my street, you know, broke their arm or cut their faces open on a swing set. There was no going to the hospital or the doctor. They went to the veterinarian who lived up the street, and he was the guy that set the arm. Nobody could, nobody on the street could afford to go to the doctor. I did not break my arm, and when I did get my face cut wide open, I did end up in uh, St. Joe's emergency. You know, but a lot of the families on the street they, they couldn't afford uh, to be doing any of that. Yeah. You know, um, uh, so that you know it was the veterinarian that that took care of that stuff. And, and then you get one of these packages at home, and you go, that's the same stuff that I took to school. So Yeah, Mrs. Myers, who's still <laughs> alive, by the way, um, who, who recently reached out to me. She, um, she read the book. and uh, she, uh, Anyways, the Salvation Army came, and, and it, was, it was weeks before Christmas, maybe the beginning of December, and they said we're collecting food, cans, uh, you know, non-perishables for families, because some families... Their daddies don't work, and they don't have any money. And some families out there don't even have a stove to be able to cook. And, uh, and some of those uh, families were actually in the classroom. Anyways, so uh, we all collected food. And uh, Bunny Wilson, I remember her and I, we got, I think, a can of niblets corn and box craft dinner and some uh, wax beans, and we stuck them in the... Uh, Instant milk, I remember. Put him in. I put. I, I brought him to school, and I put him in the in the food hamper for the needy. And um, and about uh, three days before Christmas, there was a knock on the door, and uh, Bunny answered the door. I, the dog was barking. I ran to the door. Bunny was trying to shoo us both away, and it was a Salvation Army with a box. And he gave the box to Bunny, and she took the box and she put it over on the kitchen table and she was telling me to get away, I remember. I really wanted to see what was going on because it was really exciting that some, yeah. some guy in a uniform showed up with a box with right before Christmas. Holy shit, man. This is great. And I grabbed the chair and I leaned, I kneeled on the chair and I looked over the, the box and looked in and there was like, you know, a can of niblets corn and <laughs> a can of wax beans and a box of craft dinner. And uh, I realized that, you know, that our, my household was, were one of the needy. But I got to tell you, I, even as a kid, I went to school laughing my head off that we got these things, right? I mean, this was yeah. not something, it wasn't like something that you necessarily hung your head down, you know, and were bummed out about. It was just like, uh, it wasn't even, oh, well, it was like, you wouldn't believe it. We got stuff. We got, we, we got it. <laughs> all this shit we brought in. We got. I got, got back. I can't believe it. So do you ever? Um, f- 
Sorry, continue yeah. with that thought. I mean, there was kids that uh, there was kids that lived in uh, you know that the, the parents could afford the lot. You know, the, the 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 neighborhoods were being developed, and the kids could afford the parents could afford the lot, but they couldn't afford to build a house. So, I mean, if they bought the house in this time of year, they were pitching tents and living on living on you know the lot and uh, saving up and buying some kind of trailer. You know what I mean? And living in the trailer. And then, you know, saving up money and getting their house built, you know. I mean, it was it was uh, the norm, okay? Yeah. yeah. You know, it's like Munn Street in Hamilton was, uh, they had like these wartime houses like with uh, two bedrooms, right? And there's always these little tiny, like, you know, sheds of houses that were built for the soldiers coming home from Second World War with two bedrooms, you know, that you'd always see like, you know, 11 kids running out the front door. It's like, it was like a clown car. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. like, where did all the, <laughs> where did everyone come from? Yeah, you know, all the, all, especially, you know, like in, in the Catholic, in, in the Catholic neighborhood, you know, it was like, you know, they, they were, they were, they were sticking to the rules of the church, right? So they were just having kid after kid after kid. There's no birth control. And so, you know, <laughs> and they're all seemed to be all the Catholics lived in these tiny little, Tiny little um, wartime houses, they were called. So the point being that, um, you know, you don't, it, it's its not a sob story. It's something that, you know, that was just, it's just a story. You know, it's just, uh, to me, it was just part of growing up. I, I wouldn't know uh, what it was like not to grow up like that. Obviously, we don't, you know, we, we don't know who who we are, what we look like until we step outside of our homes and our neighborhoods and our cities and, and face the rest of the world and realize that, you know, things are different. Mm-hmm. I remember we had to go to baseball practice further on the East Mountain, where my wife grew up, in fact. <laughs> and um, she lived on Margate Avenue. And when I was a kid, I always said I wanted to be married to a blonde girl from Margate Avenue. <laughs> and it, it took me about 56 years to find her, but I did find her. Um, and... Um, I remember going to play baseball over by Sherwood and all the houses were like brand new. They were all like what you called split levels. You know what I mean? Uh, the lawns looked really, really greener. Uh, the kids looked cleaner. The fathers were, were dressed pretty good. The cars in the driveways were newer. The ice cream truck was shinier. You know what I mean? And uh, I was eight years old at that time, and I realized that there was another world besides uh, where I grew up. Because where I grew up was like, you know, I mean, uh, there was cars on uh, cinder blocks and, um, you know, uh, broken windows. You know, it it wasn't, trust me, it was not, it was not uh, inner city, uh, whatever, ghetto is the right word. But it was, it was a working lower, lower, uh, lower middle class uh working class neighborhood you know yeah when you when you were with um i i i need to come back to you know you're not keeping all of this are you going to edit this right maybe i don't know (laughs) we'll think about that all right we'll think about that yeah maybe give it a listen before you put it in the air um I, I want to go back to. I'm going to connect these two. So in Junk House, you tell these stories about 
uh, the whole band and seemed to be in a drunken rage all the time. Mm. Um, but then years before, as you get, you're getting all these clues from your girlfriends, from, from the kids when you were growing up, from um, the way you felt to these presents that you used to receive uh, at Christmas, uh, you, you never seem to put Bunny in a corner and say, tell me the truth. Who am I or why do, why do I feel this way? Uh, unless you did and didn't put it in the book, but I, I'm, I'm curious on why you sort of shut it out of your mind maybe and sort of just didn't want to deal with it. Is that fair to say? Well, it was, it was uh, uh, all I could say was Catholic guilt. Um, and it huh. was uh, never to be, uh, you know, uh, whatever you want to call it. You don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Or um, uh, the, the story, uh, Bunny used to say, uh, uh, four years old, I asked the question, I was shut down. It was like, how come all the other mums on the street are really young and you're really old? And how come I don't look like you guys? I was four years old. You know, you can't really can't fool kids. And the second time I asked was I was 14. I asked the same thing. And uh, 14, I remember Bunny saying, how can you ask such a question? How, what kind of person are you to ask such a question? Your father fought and lost his eyesight in the Second World War, sitting in a plane over Germany, getting bombs exploded all around him just so that you could have some food on the table to eat and a decent bed to sleep in. How can you ask such a question? So I just shut the fuck up because what are you going to do with that, right? So, I mean, um, you know, like I say, Bunny had the temperament of a scalded cat. She was the most generous, loving person I'll ever meet on this planet, but she had... uh, a bit of a, she had a way of putting you in your place, and I think it all came from the Catholic Church. Yeah, and so you're 14, and you're heading into, or you're you're, you're entering into your musician years. Like, mm-hmm. how how did that impact in your writing and your creative? Well, it, it made me driven, I'd have yeah. to say, because uh, it, it made me driven in a way uh, that I think I'm still driven today, and. Um, Maybe not. Uh, maybe not driven towards uh, fame, and I'm still not driven. You know, I, I, towards money. I mean, in both cases, I, I understand that uh, notoriety or some kind of fame, you know, can lead to making some money. And I just really need enough money to, you know, to keep the wheels, keep the tires on the road. I'm not. Uh, I'm not overly greedy or anything, um, and I think I, I think that uh, there's just some burning desire. <sighs> maybe it's to. Uh, you got me really thinking about this because maybe it's. I, I had to prove something to myself. Um, the thing about being a musician and getting on a stage was that I could invent myself, mm-hmm. and uh, through my art, I could invent myself. So through folk music when I was a teenager into kind of punk rock yeah. uh, as in my 20s. And then uh, Junk House in my 30s, I was, um, I, w- I was inventing myself. And I was trying to prove uh, something to myself. And um, trying to prove that, uh, 
you know, uh, I guess uh, in some ways I was trying to prove that I, I wasn't just that, uh, that kid who looked like an Indian. And is there, like, you talk about the different uh, personas or, or groups and projects and Blackie and, and everything. Like, is, is, is there something to these various personas? Like, uh, where am I going with that? No, you know what? Yeah. I know where you're going with that. And uh, to me, it's the same, uh, same as going from, uh, uh, I, I, I'm a, I, I, how's this? I'm not an artist, but I like to paint. So let's, let me just say okay. that first. Um, so I, I paint, and if I decided that I wanted to go uh, uh, work with uh, clay or I wanted to be uh, work with uh, you know stone, I wanted to carve things out of stone, or if I wanted to work in textiles, I'd still be creating. Yeah, yeah. It just wouldn't be painting anymore. Sure. And I find that uh, these musical things all represent... Uh, ways I want to uh, communicate, ways I want to express myself. So, um, folk mu- folk musician, and as a teen, it was way different than punk rock. I, I never was a punk rocker, but I was in played lots of punk. I played at least play Larry's Hideaway here a lot. And toured with Teenage Head endlessly, and all you know, like back then. And then, um, excuse me, uh, edit that out. <laughs> that is something you should edit out. <laughs> Uh, so, um, mm-hmm. uh, the, the bands don't, you know, I don't, it doesn't matter what the name is. It's just, they're, they're representing just different things that I want to do and they might as well come under a different name. Uh, and, and also, uh, you know, I like to keep things under, uh, keep changing the names of the bands and, and the style of music that I'm doing so that there's absolutely no chance of ever being massively successful and have huge appeal why would we want that why would i want that you and there so you're friends with dave bedini radio statics yeah they they had that same issue right they didn't want to become hugely successful they had that hit single and they said oh we don't want this yeah well how's this neil young had the same issue with yeah but i mean the intent I, i'm not necessarily saying um it's a bad thing or yeah. that it's not for me i'm just saying that uh it, it's not why i do this yeah. Nor How's is it, that? Nor is it a sabotage. It's just no. It's not even sabotage. It's just uh, 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 you know the reason why you want to become an artist instead of uh, an interviewer or a manager or the guy who works over there. The reason why you become an artist is, is that you can do whatever you want to do, whatever you want to do it, and nobody is there to tell you how or when, right? Which, by the way, by the looks of you two guys, I think you're in. Should probably get into being an artist soon because you look like guys that <laughs> pretty well like to make decisions for yourselves and and get yeah. things done that you want to get done. Um, and, and, and so, as an artist, that's the goal. The goal is, you know, you know. I thought I thought that uh, Lady Gaga's outfit was fantastic at the at that Met that? Gala. That was amazing, and I kind of really love her. But I, I, you know, that's 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 not that's not uh, it's not in my crosshairs. It never was, and I, I never really found people that were really famous uh, that interesting. You know, I mean, you know, there's a few, Gore Downey was very interesting. He became really, you know, quite successful, um, and the real statics are are equally as as interesting, and they did never became that popular. Anyways, so all that kind of stuff is a lot less interesting than the actual. 
goal of being able to continue to create. So we were talking about how somehow we talked about money and somehow we talked about fame. And really what we're talking about is the artist's job, the person that's working to be an artist, keeps creating to make enough money so that they can wake up the next day and have that freedom to create again. Do it again. It's like if you uh, remember, what was that great, the best Joker in the Batman? forget his name he died do you remember oh yeah yeah, yeah. Heath Heath Ledger Ledger. yeah his Joker character was fantastic Mm -hmm. and all those mob guys are trying to figure out what makes the Joker tick they give him the money pile money he burns all the money you know they can't figure out what makes him tick it's chaos but in artist's own way, it's like we're, we're creating our own chaos, you know what I mean? And nobody can figure out. I went to see my accountant. He deals with <laughs> musicians and artists and <laughs> actors. And I know he sits at the other side of the desk. And deep down, he doesn't know what the fuck these people. <laughs> he doesn't know what I'm thinking or why I'm thinking. He just wants to deal with the money. You know? <laughs> or why you make the decisions you do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's crazy. I mean, look at this. This man is only 27 years old. So <laughs> <decided>. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, what are you doing now? So, anyways, that's uh, like a 15 year old Whitby kid going like a deer in the headlights. Yeah, I, I played a lot of the. I mean, Larry's Hideaway was a, it was a bit of a punk temple, you know, yeah. or a live music temple for sure. Okay. But um, we played a lot. Uh, basically, uh, there used to be a joke about how many Queens hotels you could play in in a, in a year, you know. And played down in tobacco country and played a lot of places where, you know, older, older, less fortunate gentlemen were, were living upstairs, you know. The, uh, the, uh, uh, we used to go and, you know, stay in places where they would have like a big thick rope tied around a radiator as the fire escape in the place, right? That, oh, that was, yeah. that was common, yes. right? And, uh, you know, seven times out of ten, Somebody, some guy in a band had like tied a noose <laughs> out of that rope just because it's like pure hell. Living with strippers, living with drug dealers, living with uh, you know migrant workers. All the you know that, that was a colorful time. I remember Blind River being playing. Oh my the, god! Uh, yeah, uh, whatever the, the what was the, that bar the called? Story. Yeah. Uh, no, I can't remember. Okay, Hearst, yeah, just, Blind River. Wow, total crap. And look at how look at how well look adjusted we are today. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. How old are you? Fifty two. Wow, you're young looking fifty two. Thank you. Way to go. I'll take that. Yeah. 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 So continue <laughs> no? road stories. Yeah. War stories here. No, this I, is good. We I I, uh, I asked some people if they had any questions. Yeah. That they wanted to ask you so uh, Greg, start off. You had a question you wanted to ask specifically. Well, I mean, I, I, I was sort of half joking when I was thinking, what band hasn't invited you to join them on stage in the last six months? Because <laughs> I was at the, the, the tribute for Gary. Um, Gar- odds. Oh, yeah. Gary Lowe. Odds. Gary Lowe, yeah. Odds show. Uh, I'm trying to think of what else. Anyway, I just my, my wife and I were joking okay, so that. you named two, so obviously there's more <laughs> bands out there that don't invite me to. Uh. <laughs> no, no, no. There was, there was another one, and then, yeah, anyway, yeah. I'm, um, well, I'm with Matt Anderson. He invited me to come sing with him at the Danforth on uh, Saturday night. So, you know, there you go. Maybe you're right. Um, 
trust me, I'm not dying to get on stage. It's just, you know, you're hanging out with friends and they say you're coming down to the show and why don't you do a song? Yeah, I meant that as a compliment. I didn't mean that as in you had to be on it. Just like, you know, it it speaks to me in terms of all the musicians and the the, the artists who want you to be with them. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's nice. Thank you then. And thank you to those musicians. It's funny because I didn't, I didn't think I did. I wasn't sure about uh, what kind of job I did at the Gary Lowe benefit. And I was asked to do that because, I mean, Junkhouse and Big Sugar toured so many shows together in the mid-90s, you know. And Gary was always a quiet, really sweet guy. Anyways, um, I didn't know how I did. And, and people, it's, it's amazing that, you know, you get up on a stage and you do a song and, and you figure out, oh, well, you know, nobody... Nobody will remember this. And then you run into some guy, uh, you know, in a grocery store somewhere. And he says, man, I saw you. <laughs> saw you at the Danforth. Oh, my God, you were great. It was the best thing of the night. You know, you hear that a lot. But because um, uh, people are drunk. <laughs> but um, but I, I'm happy that everybody who did see it reported that uh, it was really good. Yeah, because, was, I mean, the, the whole, I mean, it was just, it was a night of love, right? Oh, like, my it was God, just... yeah. And the reggae that night. So good, man. Yeah. That, you know, that, that, that band, they, they could turn on a dime. They're yeah. great. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I've got an editable part here. We do a, uh, this summer I'm not going to record anything. But I have this series called Your Favorite Song. Mm-hmm. Seeing that we're talking about music, let me just ask it here. Um, you talk about it in your book, was, which was interesting, what your favorite song, when, when you, I think you heard it as a kid. Heard it as a kid coming out of a fever, yeah. And Bunny had got me a transistor radio. Um, I forget what kind of sickness I had, but I was like really, really sick. And I had a terrible fever, and there was a hospital, a couple trips to the hospital involved in that, and doc- doctors when they used to come to your house. And I came out of it, and there was like this little, I don't know, Panasonic or Zenith, some kind of little transistor radio on CKOC in Hamilton. It was playing If You Could Read My Mind by Gordon Lightfoot. And it was, I remember it being, I remember it touching me in a way as a like probably eight or nine-year-old kid. It touched me in a way that uh, it was otherworldly. How's that? You know what it sounded like hearing that song for the first time? It gave me the feeling, the same feeling I get when I hear it now. You know how a song will take you right back? Yeah. You know why? That's why music is so important to us because we have such an emotion. Our, Our heart, whether we want it or not, our heart is attached to that melody and the sound you know, of the drums or the guitar on that and the voice. And I could go in my car and throw it on my phone and play it on the way home, and I feel exactly the same way I did as when I came out of that fever when I was eight or nine years old. That song is uh, is my favorite song of all time. Awesome. Can you do me a favor? Yeah. Yes, I'm going to put it at the beginning of this particular part. Can oh, you... so you are editing. Yeah, this part Parker. I'm going to. <laughs> now it's but there's editing stuff here. Just introduce yourself, like your name, who you are, if, if someone listens to this has, has no clue, and then my favorite song is, and then I'm going to take that part and I'm going to throw it in at the beginning of this last part. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, this is Tom Wilson. Uh, I write books and I uh, draw pictures, and uh, my favorite song of all time is Gordon Lightfoot's if you could read my mind. Awesome. Thank you. 
Let's get to some of these questions. Holy fuck. This is, okay. Yeah, yeah. That you people have. I swear to God, if the, I knew the interview was going to be this long. I, I, I would have had you like order some orders and food. And, <laughs> you know, like snacks and stuff. You want to order? Can you order? No, no. I'm, I'm, no, no, no. I'm completely joking. <laughs> we, we, actually, we got I, fruit in the kitchen, I, too. Okay. Here's one. This is from Jennifer. Do works with uh, Stephen Peering. Yes, I know her. Yes, that's okay. I feel like an outsider here. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, you to... Now you know how I feel. No. You are living. Now. I am. The... <laughs> A book is coming out soon. Yeah. Here's one question from Jennifer. With so many creative outlets on the go, Lee Harvey Osmond writing, painting, Blackie's 25th anniversary record coming up, touring for this book, your many musical collaborations. Here's one. What does he do to keep inspired and able to generate new ideas? I just I keep cracking my heart open a little bit more, hopefully every day. I'd like to say every day, every week, because um, part of creating things or wanting to create things is is kind of working on cracking your heart open a little more and loving a little more. So that's, that's, that's the answer to that question. Kelly, which is uh, Greg's better half. Yes. Much better half. Much better. <laughs> <laughs> she has a simple question. Yes. How are you still alive? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, uh, once again, uh, I think I, I was surrounded by uh, some angels. You know what? Uh, Alan, my manager, has always been really good to me. Um, you know, he's, you know, CPR. Um, and uh, that, that's always been helpful. Um, and, uh, I think the love of my kids, you know, uh, the love of my, my kids and, uh, has, has kept me, uh, wanting to stay here. There's a, a part in, in your, in your book when, um, when, uh, your, your first wife kicks you out, Sandy. Yeah. So your girlfriend, I don't know if you ever married her. Anyway, Sandy kicks you out. Yeah, we were married. Yeah. I think this is the final time she kicks you out. Um, yeah, and I, I don't know whether it was then or when you kind of snuck back out of rehab over Christmas, but you describe this look in your kids' eyes yeah. of um, there's love there, but you can sense there's like disappointment. I don't know if that was the word that you used. Um, how was that? Was was it a journey for you to to earn your kids' trust again? Because they, you seem to work with both of them now. Uh, there seems to be that. Uh, that father-child relationship of not just f- best friends, but there's there's that love there. How I'm curious about that journey, or was there a journey, or was it he's our dad, we love him unconditionally? Um, yeah, I, I think that the uh, that that the job that I now have as a father is is now a lifetime job. The job of um, letting my kids know that they're loved is a job that I have every day. So, um, while whatever beating I got in that period of my life, um, I, it definitely, you know, made me a better person and uh, made me more aware uh, of the gifts, you know, that I, that I've been given. Uh, my kids.
kids, uh, uh, they deserve the best person that I can be. I'm trying to find this other question that came in. Your 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 paintings. It was it had something to do with your paintings and your, and your guitar. Um, I'm I'm really curious about the the themes in there. Seem to be indigenous themes. Am I am I right there? Am I wrong? Yeah, you're right. Yeah. What? How do you? Are are those for you? Are those to sell? Are those commissioned? How do you treat that sort of art? Um, well, first of all, the images uh, uh, I realize are are blood memory. Huh. So I've been painting these, what seem to look like indigenous images, simple images, since 1997. Many, many, many years before I found out that I was actually a Mohawk. And uh, blood memory is responsible for making up a lot more of who we are that we don't acknowledge. You might look like your father or your brother. might look like your mother. It's because you look like them. I mean, it's like the tip of the iceberg of what you are inside. And that comes from generations. That comes over oceans of time. And some of the simple feelings that we get or the things that come out of us we don't always know where they're coming from. A lot of writers say that they're magic, they're dropped out of the sky, but I believe that it's blood memory, that we're, we're, um, we are being given the gifts from uh, our ancestors, you know? Huh. So those paintings kind of came from a place that I didn't know where they were from. My daughter said, geez, these look a lot like uh, Iroquois false faces, you know? And I said, well, that's kind of cool. And I didn't think anything more about it until I started to... Uh, paint after I found out oh wow that I was a Mohawk and as I mentioned earlier in this interview I started to um, uh, create things with this intent with this identity that I didn't know that I had and as a result uh, the images only got stronger and stronger so um, painting for I mean I, I I paint very simple things I always wanted to paint things shapes and images that uh, a child, a young, young child could identify, or if I held a painting up a block away from you on this city street, you'd say, oh, yeah, there's an eye and a mouth, you know, that you could tell what they are. Um, I don't think that, uh, uh, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a technician when it comes to music. I'm not a technician when it comes to guitar playing. I'm not a technician as a visual artist, like I said. Uh, I, I'm not a... Uh, I'm not an author, but I like to write books. I'm not an, a painter uh, artist, but I, I like I like to paint. Right? Yeah. I do things that I like to do, and and uh, you know whatever those things are. Sometimes people like them, and then they want to pay them for them, or they want to put them up on their wall. And that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, the author Michael Barclay. I don't know if you know Michael. He's written about music for McLean's. He wrote uh, the Never Ending Present. Story, oh, yeah, but, right. yeah. So he had a question for you, mm-hmm. and you, you talked a little bit about this, and I think you also mentioned in your book 
I'm curious what the response from indigenous artists to Wilson's late-in-life revelation and reclamation of his heritage, if he feels he's in a privileged position compared to those who have been artists for decades when being visibly indigenous meant being ignored. So he has that question to you about that, that, that place of privilege that you have or had and then making, I don't know, the switch or, or sort of... There's, there's, there's no privilege in... in, in uh, uh, the lack of identity can't mm. be defined as privilege. And um, I find that, uh, uh, you know, I find that to be, you know, kind of a colonialist question. You know, it's almost like saying, you know, when colonialists' questions come up like, so how Indian are you? Huh. Because there's not one indigenous person that's ever asked me, so how Mohawk are you, Mr. Wilson? It's just taken as a whole. Oh, so you're one of us. So the journey that it took me to get here, uh, really, uh, has nothing to do with being indigenous or with privilege or, or not. Hmm. Um, that uh, anything that we do as artists is just about hard work. And uh, the way you pull yourself up every day and, and make whatever magic you have to offer the world happen uh, that's a pretty great gift. Yeah. Uh, um, probably if you're going to edit this, I would just say that my initial answer is is what I would like to say. Sure, sure. 20 years sober now? Ish, 20, 20 years, December 12th. 20 years, December 12th, yeah. Why, why was that? It was your kids, yeah? That sort of this is, you, you wanted to be that dad. Was there was there more to that? Was there? I mean, we're both fathers, mm-hmm. I, um, and and I don't not I, and I've, I've I'm not a drinker. I've never uh, never never well I've I've had sips here and there, but I've never been a drinker sort of thing. So I don't know what it's like to to, to quit that or, or to quit drugs or anything like that. But um, what, like, what is it to be for you to be sober? Well, um, let's uh, generalize. It's, it's, it, I find it's re- way better. There's only one way for me to live now, and that's yeah. to be productive rather than destructive. Ah, uh, uh, okay. And, uh, you know, that, 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 that's where I'm at. I, I don't want uh, to be anything less than that, than productive. Is it a, is it a struggle? No. No. Okay. No. I'm going to do this reading. Uh, this is, uh, if you notice, in my, in my, this is my stage book. And everything's printed a little bit bigger oh. so, that, so, that I can, so that I can actually read it. Is every page like that or just the ones you like to read? No. Just the, one, just the stories that I yeah. read. Uh, the things that I read at like literary festivals and at concerts and, and whatnot. Um, so this is a little piece taken from not that long ago that I had to put into the book because my son and I worked as a, uh, we went out touring the Lee Harvey Osmond record in the U.S. and we were out on the road for uh, months. And uh, you know how 
you know, we uh, you try to get that bonding going on with your kids as they get older because, you know, you become a little bit redundant in their lives. Sure. And, and in their mind, you know, and you can't believe that, you know, the babies that relied so heavily on every part of you, you know, have, don't, you know, it, it's tough on parents. Um, something about writing this book, you know, when I sat down to write this book, I sat down with a lot of anger and uh, uh, darkness, and as I wrote, that darkness and that anger started to lift. I was mad at Bunny and George Wilson. I was mad at my mother, Janie. I was mad at all the people that didn't fill me in about who I was. I had that lack of identity. And um, as I started to write, all that started to lift, and I started to feel the love that I talked about earlier that we have as children for our parents that the whole world revolves around them and I started to feel that again as like a 57 year old man and um, uh, so I wrote this piece this is about this is just a little bit on my son and I traveling through America <clears throat> the sun's going down Kansas exhales all its October colors and steps aside for the night to turn it into any old place in the dark. Black and white Dorothys and Totals are running down country roads away from home again, and the ghosts of the Cutter family are getting into their pajamas, kneeling beside their bed to say their prayers, soon to be murdered in cold blood and tossed into the pile of human horrors inside the pages of Truman Capote's greatest work. For us, the state of Kansas was just a long story that went on and on and on like an old uncle at a family funeral. Kansas the Eternal was about five hours behind us, and it was hard to leave its candied barbecue, the ghost of Count Basie, his right hand plucking notes between shots of gin, lines of coke, and draws of reefer. The city still holds down the super chief rhythm that drags the faithful through the doors of the bar rooms of churches, strokes the heads of the school children, blesses the masses, saving southern souls and getting them while they're young, baby. Getting them while they're young. Yeah, the city's eternal. It's inside of you and it's inside of me. Excuse me, do you know the way to Kansas City? And now my spirit is finally free after all these years, and I'm feeling stronger than I ever had before. I'm rolling into towns that I'd only ever heard about in songs and seen on TV and in movies. Cutting a valley through the middle of the land, roaring on the stages like a crazed preacher, staring my audiences in the eye and handing out pieces of my heart like communion wafers. We rage out of town with my son Thompson behind the wheel. We drive through the mountains on treacherous roads like gray ribbons that run around the wastes of giant snow-covered beasts and out across the desert into no man's land. The home of a million spirits all tugging on a steering wheel and covering our eyes from the back seat of our Chevy Suburban. They want us to crash out there and join them for eternity, but Thompson's wits are too sharp and his heart is too pure to be dragged in by their tricks. Nighttime. Lost in America where we charge past the drunken drivers who killed Johnny Horton and Clarence White. We keep on going, feeling the legends of the land all around us, visiting the shrines, looking at the walls of chess records and the Ryman Theater for the nails that were used to hang our heroes to their crosses. These are the places, or this is the road that we heard about. For us, 
It all ends at the Joshua Tree Motor Inn. The Holy Land, or at least one of the holy places we heard about in those hard-boiled scriptures. The Joshua Tree Motor Inn was like getting to drive around in the car that Hank Williams died in. There was some sicko curiosity and shallowness that went along with that. But the thought of what happened there, the thought of Graham Parsons, was what drew us there like a magnet. And deep down, we knew we had come to the place where we belonged. And the silence was like no silence I had ever experienced. It came rolling over me like a hot breath that had traveled a thousand miles over three states of desert, collecting the whispers of dead Indians and the heat of Mother Nature's womb to finally reach me. I lit up a smoke and stood on the roof of the truck. I looked out over the giant. The desert embraced me like no other landscape had ever done anywhere in the world. I filled my lungs with the burning air, let go, got back behind the wheel, and drove back to the motor hotel. Thompson and I ate the remaining cookies we picked up in Denver. We went swimming in the ancient concrete pool and outside our motel room across the meditation sands in the shrine for Graham Parsons. Thompson drank cans of beer and played guitar in the desert night. The sky lit up like a line of poetry. These were precious moments for sure. Somewhere out there in wild America, we had finally found the peace and we had finally found the love that we always heard and knew was out there. Thank you so much, Tom, for coming in. Thanks for having me, you guys. Real pleasure. Thanks. Appreciate it very much.